When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back. This is episode 203. Does speed really matter? Bun, Node.js, Veet, mm-hmm. and Webpack. I almost said Vite, and I got I got scared halfway through <laughs> reading that list. But anyway, that's the name of the episode as it stands. We may SEO it later as per everything usual, unless this is already SEO'd. Uh, we did a bit of a different show note this time, so... Uh, Mike made the title and did all the stuff for the beginning, and then I have a l- bit of a section, a segment, if you will, to add to the end, so it's a bit of a cooperative episode. Uh, so, I mean, let's just jump in, and if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon, leave a review rating on your podcast app, join us in our Discord server, or share this with your friends. And, uh, Mike, take it away on, uh, you know, does speed slash performance really matter? Yeah, absolutely. Um, really, like... I have had a lot of experience on many different sides now of speedy performance and not speedy performance. And with the announcement of, of Bun, which is, I'll, I'll get into what that is in a second. With the announcement of Bun and, and Deno and Vit and all that, or Vit or whatever it's called, all that recently. And all these little frameworks that are coming out that are just like aiming for, hey, I'm two milliseconds faster than this one. And like I'm three milliseconds faster than this one. I want to talk about speed as a whole, right? Like this isn't going to be an episode where I'm going to throw a bunch of numbers at you. This is more going to be, at least from my side of things, I'm going to talk about like how where speed really matters to me personally and where speed matters to the consumer or to the customers, right? Um, and where you should kind of like focus on a little bit more and where where you don't need to worry about, you know, saving extra milliseconds. That's kind of the idea that I have. Um, but essentially I just kind of want to break it down into three different categories. One is like development environment, like hot reloading, building, stuff like that. Developer experience speed, right? So when you're coding, does speed matter in that sense? Then the next one is production environment build speed. So like when you're going to, uh, going to deploy something on production or test servers, how long that build time takes, like does that matter a lot? And then Customer facing UX, UI, loading interactions, page speed. And Matt will talk mostly about that. He'll get into like the technicals, but I'll kind of give a little bit of an insight as well and where it matters and where I think it doesn't. A lot of this is very, I want to say subjective. Um, it's very much my opinion on, on, on a lot of this stuff. And my opinion obviously has a lot of factual based, uh, knowledge behind it, like SEO based knowledge and stuff like that when it comes to UX, UI. All the development and production environment stuff is very subjective. Now, to jump in, I mentioned Bun right off the bat. Uh, Matt mentioned it. I'm sure some of you have heard of this thing that's come out like literally a week ago, two weeks ago. I can't even remember. It's It's been very little time, but it has taken at least the the people that are in, in it by storm, like the people that are like keeping up with the new JavaScript frameworks that are coming out every week. Everyone's kind of going crazy for bun. And essentially what, what it is, is that it's a new JavaScript runtime experience, right? It's something that competes directly with something like Node.js. So it's a server side framework. And the reason that it's really kind of taken everyone over is because it's stupidly fast. And when I say stupidly fast, I'm talking like it's matching lower level coding stuff like rust it's matching stuff that is built for like to the hardware level um transpiling like it's it's matching the speed for like building web pages essentially that you would get if you were to code your own low level language compiler right now it's not like directly matched it's not exactly the same speed you could probably still get some performance gains from going even lower level but the fact that it's getting to that point and it is something that takes JavaScript, just like Node, uh, 
and brings it down and compiles it into something that a server can render is the kind of exciting part about it. There's not much else to it other than that. Like it uses regular web APIs, like you can use fetch in it and stuff like that. It, it does every, like if you, if you know Node.js, if you know like all the API routes that Node can do, the authentication, that's what Bun can do. Now it's brand new. It does support NPM, which is a big plus because that means it supports all the packages that Node would probably support. It it does have a, a good base with that, right? But it's not going to be the same kind of support that Node would have across all different hosting platforms and stuff like that. Bund is limited in a sense to certain um Linux distributions, Unix distributions, I should say, like Mac OS works with it, uh, WSL works with it. Like you can't host a Bun. Uh, runtime on a Windows server, for instance, that's a limitation right now. Um, but you can host it on a lot of other platforms and, and platforms are quickly becoming, um, compatible with it, which is kind of crazy to see as well. Like I said, it came out a couple of weeks ago officially. I think there was a beta and an alpha before that closed, but it officially came out and all of a sudden, like Vercel is talking about it. Uh, I know railway.app is talking about like it, it's another hosting platform. Like they're all kind of rushing to support it because they see the potential. Now, having said all that, like, why is it faster? Well, it uses WebKit uh, JavaScript core engine. That's Safari's engine compared to Google's V8 engine, which is the one that runs on Chrome, right? So it, it uses a little bit of a faster engine, or I should say significantly faster engine. Um, it also is built with Zig. I've never heard of Zig, but it's a low-level language, you know, like C, like Rust. Um, so it's it takes the benefits of that. So those kind of combinations make it very fast and really like again it's very much focused on building your javascript server-side code and delivering server-side rendered pages to the browser right it's not something that you can take and put into like client-side JavaScript stuff. It's not going to make your client-side JavaScript any faster because the whole point is client-side JavaScript runs on whatever browser you're running on. Like if you're running on Chrome, you're going to be running on V8. If you're running on Safari, you're going to be running on the same engine as uh, Bun, in fact, JavaScript core. But it doesn't have any effect on that. It essentially only has the effect of rendering the pages on the server and serving them. So it can render them a lot faster, which is a huge benefit if you want to serve pages quicker to your clients, like to the, to your um, audience, right? So it can have an effect. What is that effect? And this is where we want to get into a little bit of the speed talk, right? The effect is <coughs> significant. It's about three times faster in a lot of cases than Node, sometimes even more than that, sometimes a little bit less than that. So three times is significant. But again, let's break down what speed really means, right? When you're talking about a small website, like a regular static site, when you're building that out, the chances of anyone noticing and even like a page speed insights noticing, noticing a three sec, three times faster compile time on a regular, you know, React website is probably pretty low. Like it's probably not going to have that much effect for a perceived user and for your SEO because it's, it's, it's that. It's that talk of like, is it going to load in 200 milliseconds or 300 milliseconds or 500 milliseconds? Like those numbers are very low already. So is it, does it make sense to, you know, go in and start learning an, a brand new framework or a brand new runtime that just came out to build your production apps on knowing that it's going to have some inefficiencies, like somewhere it's going to probably fall off and you're going to have to learn on, learn on its own where node has a million resources, Bun is going to have a very limited amount. These are the trade-offs that I see people making on a day-to-day basis when they're going to these bleeding edge really fast, you know, runtimes or frameworks or whatever. And I don't know if like, if everyone needs to make that change, <laughs> that, that risk, right? Um, I've, I've personally made those, you know, I've, I, I've adapted Svelte, I've adapted Vite um, into a lot of my projects and I have, Loved the experience, and I'll talk about Vite versus Webpack as well in a second. But there were some trade-offs that had to be made. Like some stuff just doesn't work the same exact way as the more experienced platform, right? It's just 
there's just so many little things that you don't know until you fully dive into it. And when you're diving into it in a production environment, you're risking the fact that you might run into an issue that has never been run into before because it's a brand new technology. So is it worth going down those rabbit holes for the 3x speed? I would say, and Matt, I kind of want to take your input on that. I would say most of the time, no. If, if Bun is around for five years from now, you know, six years from now, or even three years from now, because the technology does move pretty fast, maybe then at that point on every project, you could be reaching for it. But just a blanket statement, <clears throat> is it worthwhile to just, you know, jump in and start using these new frameworks? It's, it's just, it's tough to recommend because it's like, you are going to run into issues. It's not, it's not, it's not like an if, it's a when you're going to run into issues. And how are you going to solve those issues? You've got to be very confident in your own understanding of that framework. Like you've got to be confident to the point where you can maybe go into the source code and start looking and fixing stuff like that. If you're a developer of that level, right? Like if you're a developer that can build something like Bun, then I bet utilizing Bun or utilizing any, any new technology that came out two weeks ago, is totally reasonable for you because you can go in and just fix it. You can go in and, you know, open up a pull request and and contribute to that code base. But if you're someone that's kind of just a developer, like a regular developer like me, and you don't have the time or, you know, you don't maybe you don't have the skills to go in and be able to fix lower level code like that and fix and help these projects succeed. It's a tough sell. Like it is, it is a tough sell to, to recommend going in and being like, use this because it's three times faster. Uh, I was actually going to ask you something here and, and that is that, does this speak to how f- fragmented or how poorly optimized, or I don't really know how to describe this product kind of properly, but my take with all these new frameworks and tools and everything else that comes out is that is JavaScript. Like I understand that JavaScript is very useful. A lot of people use it. We recommend people use it, that type of things. But when something like this comes out, I'm not talking against, not, not going against bun or anything like that. I've never used it, but I guess my question is, is like, is there something wrong with the core of JavaScript for us to need all of this stuff? Um, cause like you're saying yourself, you know, oh, you know, maybe let, it kind of sounds like you're saying let bun mature a bit and then you could use it. Or if you do know how to go in there and really kind of change the source code of bun and that, then fine. But because obviously bun is not a mature piece of software, you're going to run into problems and problems are something that you want to avoid as much as you can in production. So my question, I guess at that point is, is like, does it like, does this speak to sort of a crack in what would be, I would say, a, a quite a popular reputation that JavaScript has these days. I know that there are people out there that don't like JavaScript. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of the reasons why they do not. But I, I, I'm always hesitant when it comes to, comes down to stuff like this, because obviously Bun is helping with performance, but because it's not mature, it could, you know, maybe hurt your performance in some cases or have like a glitch or something is what I'm trying to say, like a bug or something that you'd have to remedy. So you have to wait. But then something else comes out, like, I don't know, baguette or something comes out and it's like, oh, like baguette. And hopefully that's not an actual JavaScript thing already, but like baguette, like is a lot faster than bun or something. And then you have this sort of like this feels really randomly. I think it's a crack in JavaScript's popular reputation at, at the moment. I, I don't know whether that's the right way to say that or, or what. I understand that people use plugins in that, like is, is, is using stuff like this or, or, or getting into stuff like this, like even just node and, and anything in general. Is this really, uh, more so like somebody shopping, like if we were to compare it, shopping for new WordPress plugins? Where, oh, like WordPress only does this base thing, but I'll take this and take this and take this in terms of plugins to extend to extend it or but then that hurts performance. Right. Is JavaScript the same way where it's like JavaScript does all of this, but it doesn't do this, 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 this and this. But I can, quote unquote, shop for those plugins like bun or node or whatever. Do you you get what I'm trying to trying to portray here? Like this feels. This doesn't feel very 
good. Like this doesn't the, having constantly new things, new things, new things, new things that aren't in the vanilla side of JavaScript always feels bizarre to me. Again, it's nothing against Bun or nothing against Node or anything. I understand that they need to be used and I've used NPM packages and stuff like this for other projects and stuff like that. But like, where are we at here when it comes to stuff like this? Because we know that if you use vanilla and you use vanilla properly, at least in our experience, you can arguably get some of the best performance for, from a site. Now, obviously, that depends on a lot of manual labor. You have to really optimize everything from your images through your code. Of course, minimize it and this and that and the other thing and, and the whole the, the, and the list goes on. But is this thing so is bun solving a problem of our own creation because we've stacked so much on top of JavaScript is bun a performance plugin for WordPress because we've put too many plugins on WordPress. Is that, is that what this is? That's a good, it's, it's an interesting take actually. And I, I will say that it has some merit. Um, I'll give an example. A lot of bun comparisons are being used with Next.js. Next.js is a framework built, a server-side rendering framework built on top of React, right? To be able to do server-side rendering using React and serve the pages to the clients and stuff like that. It's notoriously known as being, and I, and I say this in very, in very much air quotes. I'm air quoting myself right now. Slow. It is not slow. I want to, I want to make that clear. It is not actually slow. You can build very performant, great websites using Next.js that score a hundred percent on page in, page speed insights. But overall, when you compare it to a landscape of, uh, I think Nuxt and uh, Svelte, Svelte Kit and, and stuff like Remix and stuff, like all these other frameworks that have come out over the last three to five years, it's slower than them. And a lot of what you're seeing with stuff like Bun is like, hey, look, this is making Next.js fast. Like it's making, <laughs> like, like you're saying, Matt, it's making kind of a bloated system faster on top of it. Now, to be fair, that's just one aspect. That's just one comparison that people are making, right? And if you take Bun and use it with SvelteKit, it'll make SvelteKit even faster. Like there's already an adapter for Bun and SvelteKit. And I've seen it perform extremely fast, like ridiculously fast. I don't think that it's the sense that like, hey, JavaScript is fast enough that we should just stop working on making it faster. I think stuff like this is necessary whether bun is the solution or something else that comes out that's even faster. Having the ability to use JavaScript to write almost lower level code style performance um, is, I think, really cool and could be a huge benefit to the entire industry of de web developers. Like imagine now with something like this, we can go and write better transpiling stuff. We can go and write stuff that takes a lot of data and, and, you know, crunches it, does something to it a lot faster. That's where I see this shining. If you need to write something that's extremely important for performance, extremely reliant on, you know, having, being able to crunch numbers every, like however many numbers every millisecond, these are the things that are exciting about Bun. When you're comparing it to something that's building a web, your marketing website, it doesn't really matter. In my opinion, again, if you're building a marketing website on Next.js with Bun without Bun, it doesn't like whatever. Like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use Bun for building a marketing website because you need that to be up all the time. You need, you need a more robust infrastructure for it. You want hosting to be easy. That's everything you get with just like standard Next.js build <coughs> where you can de debug easily and stuff like that. That's where I kind of fall apart with the speed talk, right? When you're talking about regular website work, where it's really exciting, again, bringing back to it is like anything that requires a, a significant performance bump that you would usually write in Rust or WebAssembly, or you would usually write specifically maybe even in C to gain that performance, right? Now you can write with JavaScript? Hell yeah. Yes, because again, like you were saying before, it's all about just building, Really, like whatever, whatever helps you sit down and build more 
without having to debug every every little step. That's what we're that's what we're there for. And if you know JavaScript really well and you need to build this feature out that needs to crunch a million, you know, a million pieces of data every second, you can now use something like Bun and do that rather than having to go in and learn Rust or go in and learn C or hire a developer that knows those languages and builds it out. So that that's really awesome to me that we can start doing that. And uh, <coughs> maybe Bun's just the first step. Maybe we're going to see something even lower level and lower level. Who knows? Um, I do want to give a shout out to Jared Summer. He's the creator of Bun. His Twitter handle is literally Jared Summer with two R's for Jared. And uh, he he put in a ton of work into this, like an absolute ridiculous amount of work. And I think he built it in like a year on his own, putting in like 80 hour weeks. Now, I'm not saying that 80 hour weeks is an okay thing, but he was just really passionate about it and he really wanted to do it. So this was fun to him. Great. That's where I see it being awesome that you're putting in those weeks. I'm not saying everyone should, but he did do that. And I mean, this thing is pretty awesome. Like I can't. Deno just came out recently, right? Deno is a also a JavaScript runtime, but it's built on the same platform that Node is. It's really just has a, a, some differing uh, ways of writing your JavaScript code, and, and it has like a, a native TypeScript compiler. Anyway, I, I'm not going to get into Deno. I don't know much about it. I've never used it, um, but it's it's something that just came out recently. And I thought, hey, that's cool. It's a little bit faster. You know, it's it's got some interesting ideas. And then Bun comes out and kind of just stomps it in terms of speed and performance for sure like there's no one even a comparison because deno is very close to node and and <laughs> this is like a completely different playing field like this is way way faster and again we talk about speed and i i kind of i always want to bring up that if you're just building a website if you're building something that needs production redundancy and stuff like that it's not something you should reach for you shouldn't care about that crazy amounts of speed um, you should care about stability and again, Node or even PHP Laravel would be more stable and easier to debug and easier to, to hire for. Uh, so that those are the things you should be caring about. Speed doesn't, speed should be considered, but again, you can build a very performance site on any of those platforms. That's why I keep saying like, it's not that big a deal, but it's, it is really cool. Um, yeah. So with that, so again, that's more bun is very much, um, a kind of a combination, maybe a little bit of building. So it'll make your builds a lot faster for sure. Cause you're going to be compiling code. Uh, but it's also a user side facing thing because it's going to make your server side rendered pages go a lot faster and any JavaScript that you send it, any, any data that you send it will be crunched a lot faster. So the user can potentially see a difference there. Right. So that it, it, it does fall into a couple of different categories, the bun versus node discussion. I want to move on to VIT or VIT versus Webpack because this is something I'm also pretty passionate about. This is a very directly related to developer experience discussion rather than uh, only a, uh, a user-facing discussion or a, a production build discussion. Um, and really what I'm talking about here is like sitting down as a developer – starting up your code editor, starting your dev server, and starting to write code. So in a project that uses Webpack, and I'm using a project with Webpack right now that's pretty bloated, um, it's, a, it's a larger Nuxt project, and it could take me like a minute to two minutes to start up my dev server. And then for module reloading and saves, it could take anywhere between, you know, half a minute to a minute and a half every time I save my files um, to see the changes appear live on the site, right? So to, to see what I've done is actually doing something. Coming from some, from using Vite and SvelteKit and all these amazing tools that were recently developed where literally to start your server, it would take me maybe three seconds to 20 seconds, something in that range to start my server and then any reload of the page or reload when I'm actually developing would take me like 20 milliseconds, 50 milliseconds, hundred milliseconds in that range. It's never, it's never in the minutes discussion. Let's just say that of projects that are fairly big too. Like I've had, I've had projects with many dependencies with many external dependencies and stuff like that. That has been kind of a shocker to me. And 
it's only because I've grown used to something a lot faster. So Webpack, I, I used Webpack before I used Vit, like, uh, you know, years ago. Uh, and I was okay with it. It was fine. It was fast enough. Like, you know, a couple minutes, you wait a couple minutes, not a big deal. Um, then you wait like half a minute to, to a minute on every save, whatever. Like it's, it's still doing its job. It's still better than Android development, at least, uh, before the hot module reloading on Android. Because when I had to do that, I would literally have to build my entire application every time I made a change, wait like five to 10 minutes and get it on a device. That was a disaster. So I was really happy with Webpack because it was a lot faster. Moving to Vite, it's like astronomically faster than Webpack. And now coming back to to Webpack is tough. So developer experience, in fact, I think this is where there should be a lot of focus on speed. Because think about how much time I'm wasting every time I hit save. And I hit save a lot. Like I, I do a change and I hit save and I need to see it. I, I, I need to see how it looks. I do that quite often. Like that could be hours in a day. I mean, maybe not hours, but it could be an hour a day that I'm waiting on just changes happening to my, to my server. So anything that can lower those changes, that's where I think a lot of the time should be spent on making sure that it's compatible and stuff like that. Like I would love to switch from Webpack to Vite on the project that I'm working on right now. And in fact, that's something that I'm probably going to try to push, even though I know Vite is newer than Webpack. And again, it comes back to that exact same problem that I was talking about with Bun and Node. Now, Webpack, now Vite is a lot more mature. It's already reached a three-year mark. It's already like, you know, it's getting way more mature, but it still has inefficiencies. It still has places where it's different than Webpack, where you have to do things a little bit differently, right? So you have to take that into consideration when you're switching. But again, the trade-off between having to adapt a little bit to the the speed there of the developer experience, in my opinion, is worth it. Because you're saving a significant amount of time for, of your own time and of all the developers on your team's time that could be used to, you know, plan more, develop more, do whatever. Those are actual, like, realistic time savings that we're talking about, right? Not, you know, the... 200 milliseconds that it takes to load next to, to load a page for your client. So I'm wondering what you think on that, Matt, like, do you think the developer experience is more important in, in some cases to have that kind of, you know, give and take of being able to adapt to a newer technology, but being able to build a lot faster? I think, I think there, there is a give and take there. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of the time when you're testing a site out, uh, and I mean, from the production standpoint, so you've you've published it out and it's now in the public's hands. Um, we will oftentimes test it on our own Internet connections. And as developers, in general, we will have a high speed Internet connection, even something like five megabytes down, like a broadband connection. Um, and with most sites, five megabytes down does the job. Some media will struggle at that speed, of course, uh, streaming and stuff like that. But in general, the site will load rather well. But we often forget about the people that have, say, 3G or even slower 3G uh, and, and speeds like that. And I mean, there's been like just recently here in Canada, there was a major telecom outage. And I've had the discussion, you know, that. You know, we need more redundancy. We need to be more versatile. We need to have something there in, in place of, hey, you know, 911, which is the emergency number here, has gone down. Like it went down in some for some uh, some customers here in, in, in Canada. And it's like, hey, you know, why don't we have redundancies? And I'm not going to get into all that stuff. But what I what I am reason why I bring that up is because the developers, realistically speaking, could sacrifice some time. Sure, it's, it's lost productivity, no doubt. But if you can make that site go from one megabyte to 200 kilobytes, that's a major reduction, let's say. And that could mean the difference of it timing out for someone that needs to get in. And we don't and and I'm not just saying people that, you know, all the time they only have 3G or all the time they only have one megabyte down or something for their Internet. This could be also in a situation in which there's a problem because we, again, we test things on our broadband slash high speed, sometimes even fiber connectivity, you know, from that perspective. But we don't realize when, we, when it's like, oh, it's only 200, 200 more K. It's sort of like, 
Yeah, but it's 200K that would take like half a minute for this other person to to download. And so it is a bit of a push and pull where obviously people want new features on sites and web apps. They want new features. They want their new um, like like next evolution of whatever it is. Maybe it's a new game or it's a new, um, you know, way to edit images or whatever it is. They want all that on their website. So there needs to be, you know, a pro- the developer's productivity needs to be brought into question, no doubt. And we can't be having simple buttons, let's say, in a nav bar take two years to push out. But at the same time, if the developer spends one hour instead of 20 minutes, sure, that maybe maybe that's 45 minutes lost. But if that extra 45 minutes was to make whatever it was 80% more efficient, 200% more efficient, even though that is a negligible difference in the face of broadband and faster internets, internet speeds, there does come a time in which there are outages and there are problems, including natural disasters. And so by saving that, you're effectively saving that resource you could help somebody. Now, again, you know, I'm not not here to say make everything super efficient, make everything super minimalistic. Don't show too much in this. I'm not saying to let it necessarily stifle your innovation. But what I am saying is to consider this. If you if you're running a grocery store website and you're in an area in which a disaster may occur and you're the lifeline for somebody your developers, you know, pushing out the, the an, an add to cart widget where it's not just a button, it's a plus and minus button, you know, that allows you to add and remove quantity. That might be great for UI and UX. And I, I do, you know, love my UI and UX. And I love to poke holes in people's uh, things and be like, hey, this is horrible. Why is this button not here? This and that. I get that. But if you could, you know, maybe have the developer really optimize that feature. And I realize that's a very simple feature just as an example. But if you could have the developer really optimize that feature, if someone is literally in a disaster scenario in which they have like a crappy phone or the the cell towers are down and it's ba- or virtually down and it's barely loading data, like they might need that. So it's just it's just something to consider. I'm not saying that we're always in a disaster scenario or anything, but I am like the telecom outage really made me think about how how like fragile our infrastructure is like losing 911, losing internet, TV, and everything. It's like, what is going on here? And I had a friend that had his cell phone go out and his internet go out, his Wi-Fi. So that's it. Like we didn't hear from him, and that's it. So like when it when it comes to building things, I'm just thinking more and more about how to keep things redundant or keep things alive or just functioning good enough in situations that are not ideal. And that's just, that's, that's a piece of the puzzle when it comes to the push and pull between productivity of the development team and the people using the site. Maybe 90% of the people using the site will never notice the fact that you brought something down from one megabyte to 800 kilobytes. Maybe they'll never notice that. But the one person that can actually load that site in some sort of prob- like problematic situation, that, you know, that could be, dep- again, it also depends on your site. If it's a little Flash game, or well, I guess it's not a Flash game anymore, but if it's a little, like, browser game, then it's like, okay, if it doesn't load, it doesn't load. But if you're, if, imagine if you were, like, the information center for, like, if you're making the information center for, like, something really critical, whatever it is, some sort of infrastructure or something, and your site just just takes longer to load. Like, just for whatever reason, like, it's kind of like, eh, why? <laughs> that's, that's just my, that's just my thought. My sites are not the most optimized. I'm not going to claim that they are. They're not the best thing in the world. And I probably couldn't even make them the best thing in the world for performance, but it is something to consider in, in that push and pull between, Hey, you know, we could have our developers pump this out and it works for 90% of users, just great. And the other 10% will suffer, maybe not completely, but a little bit versus like, Hey, you know, we have to consider that some people don't have the fastest internet due to whatever situation, including just a problem, like a technical problem or something that's causing the network to not work as well. Do we want our tech to work on subpar or in a subpar situation? That's just my, that, that that's my two cents on that based on recent events. 
Yeah, I mean, you have a good point where maybe using some of this newer technology to reduce your footprints is also a, a possible good thing, right? Like if 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 Bun reduces the footprint of your web page by, you know, 2x, then maybe it could be worthwhile to invest in, especially if you're in an information-heavy site or something like that, that needs to be available more often. Having said that, obviously, no internet means no, regardless of how big your site is, you're not going to get anything out there. But if we can provide redundant services like 3G, when your internet goes down or something like that, then this becomes a really big discussion, right? Like if, if we're forcing, if we force our telecoms to be like, you need to make a separate network that's always going to be available separately completely from your main network that's it could be slower it could be worse maybe that is a discussion to be had and then we can have the the more deeper discussion of how like which sites need to have this kind of efficiency to be to to make sense right like again government websites probably information heavy websites about your local area like news websites probably need to start thinking about these kinds of things but as it stands right now, like there is no legislation there, and like I highly doubt that <laughs> uh, we'll be able to pass anything. I'm kind of pessimistic on the whole telecom situation in Canada, um, and probably in the states too. But I don't know anything about it. Well, uh, I, I don't even I don't mean just just due to like a disaster. Like obviously, if the internet kicks out, the internet kicks out. But we've all had just slowdowns in our home, and a lot of my friends when I when 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 everything kind of goes to like one line, so it goes to the internet, and like I've mentioned to my friends, would be like, man, like that. Like, I would prefer to have almost like, say, satellite TV if I were to have TV. It's like, I'd rather have satellite TV and then also have Internet because then I could at least watch TV. And to them, they're like, yeah, but, you know, are you really that desperate to do something? It's like, I'm not necessarily that desperate to do something, but like, why are we opening ourselves up for the problem? And we've all had slowdowns on our Internet. Wouldn't it be better if we just didn't even notice that there was a slowdown type of thing, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. Like, I don't necessarily mean it, it has to be like a natural disaster or like a place that only has slow Internet. It could just be you have fiber Internet like I have fiber Internet and it's sometimes slow. And so it's like a, some maybe they're on some sort of redundant system doing maintenance. Well, that redundant system might run a little better if there was less traffic. That's all I'm trying to say, I guess, is it's is that. Is that we it's just it's just something to consider. It's just something to to, to wonder, like, hey. You know, do we, should we have it? it you know what? Uh, companies have considered it too. Uh, Facebook has that Facebook light or whatever it is. Um, and I, I don't know if there's other ones too, but it's, I, it, it's like a lower, uh, fidelity, I suppose, version of Facebook that uses less data and, and stuff like that. It's sort of like, it's just, it, it's just like that, that sort of consideration for me where it's like, wouldn't it be great if, you know, Zoom, I don't know if Zoom actually already does this or not, but like, wouldn't it be great if if my internet like drops from the 250 down and up that it is at down to five due to some sort of technical problem? Wouldn't it be great that I wouldn't even notice that and I could still record this podcast right now? That's what I mean by the push and pull, because it's like the Zoom developer could make it less compressed, make the signal less compressed and have that done in one hour. Or he could spend four hours making sure it's compressed And then that's like and then it just works. It's kind of like an unsung hero situation, though, where people are very dismissive in that, like, oh, the Internet's down. I'll wait a little bit or I'll restart the router or whatever. But for me, I'm just thinking of it in in terms of. But what if there's an issue that lasts for three days? Do you still want to be able to work from home? Does that does that three, four hours additional from the developer like at Zoom? Again, this is just made up. But if if a developer at Zoom spent three or four more hours, isn't that like beneficial to the situation that and and again like it's not like all my sites are like this it's just something that i that is like something to consider at least i think i'm going to consider it moving forward <clears throat> yeah spending a little extra time to make it a little more efficient i think again it all depends on what market you're serving for sure um right and i guess it would have to be forced by legislation because <clears throat> the only way that a, a company is going to do this in a capitalistic world is if they see it as a benefit to the bottom line. Uh, and in some cases, it is a massive benefit. So I'll, I'll talk like the next point that I have is the customer facing UI experience page loading speed. If you get your page loading to be lower and you get your actual like workflows to be s- faster, 
there is proven data that shows that there's more likely of a, of a person to go through the, the workflow of like an e-commerce website and purchase your web, your, your product. If the experience is snappy, if it's slow, like if you're every time you add something to cart, it takes three seconds for it to get into the cart or five seconds, whatever, there's going to be a bigger drop off. So a lot of effort is put into making that workflow and the page loading speed faster because it leads directly to higher sales. Again, there's proven things. I can try to find something to put into the show notes, uh, but I, I have read a couple of case studies that confirm this. That's where a lot of stuff will do. But if it's something like, you know, you're going to benefit 0.1% of the people that are looking at your web page, you can guarantee that the company is not going to put the developer on there for an extra four hours to do it. Just flat out guarantee. Now, ethically, maybe you're, you're right, Matt. Like we should think a little bit more about the, uh, about those, you know, people that are in rural areas, for instance, people that are using satellite internet, that's not Starlink, stuff like that. Like the, those people do exist on a pretty massive scale it, in Canada, especially because we do have a lot of rural areas. We have a lot of northern regions that just don't get, first of all, barely get any internet. Like they'll get 3G internet. They might have to drive into town to get the 3G and stuff like that. Like there are still those areas all over the place. It's just like the clients, the, the amount of traffic coming from those areas is very low and the amount of potential traffic coming from those areas is very low because the people living there are most likely not going to buy your product or whatever, whatever the demographic is that people, that these marketers kind of go for. Now, emerging markets, you were mentioning Facebook Lite. That's what those were built for. And it's a kind of a good thing, right? Like it's a good thing that emerging markets exist because now it forces Facebook and forces Google. I believe Google has a, a like a Google light or something like that. They even have like an Android version that's supposed to reduce the amount of traffic going to all your services um, built for emerging markets because they had worse internet. Now I've noticed, and people can correct me if I'm wrong. I've noticed that that's been very much been trending down lately. Because these emerging markets like India, like, you know, Nigeria, like Africa, they're starting to catch up with Internet to the point where I think a lot of some of these countries or at least areas in these countries have better Internet than we do. Because the infrastructure that they've that they're putting in is very focused on the Internet, um, whereas and they're focused on like diversification and many, many companies are competing against each other. Whereas when Canada and in some parts of the U.S., the competition is very low and you have two companies in the entire country that are doing this. So there's no competition there. And again, it all comes down to the capitalistic, consumeristic nature of the issue. So that's why if we want this to happen, it's either altruistic, like 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 Matt's saying, he's going to spend a little bit more time to try to make his websites better for those like five or ten people that are going to be looking at it from a bad connection. Uh, that's great. And that's going to happen. Some people are going to do that and we should strive for that. But the reality is, is that the only way to actually force this is something like legislation, something like a government body coming in and being like, hey, we have to consider these people that are living, you know, 100 kilometers away from the main city. Like they are still citizens of a country. So we need to A, provide them either better internet or B, make sure that our critical, the critical websites and you have to define those websites are up to speed so that they can use their shitty internet and still access them. I, I don't see any other way of it actually happening. I agree with that. I don't, I, I don't necessarily see, I don't necessarily see, you know, things happening on mass without legislation or some sort of competition comes in and starts like really cleaning up and then people have to chase after it. Uh, like Facebook obviously did with the Facebook Lite for emerging markets. Like there's, there's a reason for them to do that. Um, so like maybe if there was some other reason that emerged in the market that like people are like, you know, let, let's go efficient or whatever, then fine. Like if, if for whatever reason, data limitations, like, um, literally like a data limit, like, Hey, you can only use a hundred gigs of data, uh, for, for your home, uh, for a month. If, if something like that came into play again, uh, or I mean, it still is here versus on some plans, but largely it's gone. But if that did come into play, then places that really compress their stuff would really help. And, and also it, it, this, this also kind of stems from, I had a, a conversation with a client, um, actually like earlier this week and like 
we're going to be looking at like potentially redoing their their site. So we're kind of going through the procedure or whatever. And, you know, I was never told to rush or anything, but it was definitely like, a, hey, you know, how long is this going to take? And I was like, man, you know, you already have a site that works. Let's take our time with this other one. Not that I'm going to be charging hourly or anything like that and just like running the clock. But I was like, if we spend our time making the the next version of your site, because you already have one that works, making the next version of your site exactly the way we want it, working the way we want it. It's just going to be better to maintain. It's going to be better performant. It's going to be, you know, et cetera, et cetera, better. Instead of rushing and hurrying and maybe jerry-rigging the odd thing, if we spend our time and properly solve every issue and do that, because it's a rather large project, um, then we can, you know, then we can take our time with it, enjoy the project and actually like just get it out and put it out properly. Because even when you do that, there's going to be problems. So imagine if you just kind of rushed it and you're really going to have problems. So I suppose like, you know, on top of the telecom outage, this and that and the other thing, the reason why I'm considering this is because it just seems like tech is just like blasting off into space and it's like well hang on a second we don't got <laughs> we don't have redundancy or something here like hang on hang on hang on and it's like no no no, just keep going keep going keep going Uh oh screeching halt and then everyone's like freaking out because the average person doesn't realize how much they're actually on the internet using their data on their phones etc so it's just again it's just something that i'm thinking of maybe a bit i guess i'm thinking more proactively than reactively is ultimately i guess where i'm i'm coming from Mm-hmm. That's a good way to think. Well, thank uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Uh, but yeah, I think, Matt, you had a lot of insight onto the front end optimizations, finishing touches and stuff like that and Google page insights uh, to, to kind of round up our speed talk with a little bit more technical insight. So take it away. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm going to like I labeled this section front end optimization, finishing touches and Google page speed insights. And the reason why I labeled this is because this is. This section is largely um, from a, a perspective of – it's typically a marketing site that, that has these type of things. But it's like you're just about to release a site and, you know, like let's say the project is done. The design has been completed, this and that. And the next step effectively is to optimize and then release. And a lot of people will skip the optimize step or they will, you know, kind of like – do a little bit of it and not mess around with it too much and and then it like doesn't perform as well and stuff like that. And again, I'm no – absolute performance expert in this but a lot of these steps can actually help you in more than just more than just custom sites it helps you in custom sites of course but it can also help you in a variety of no code tools or in a variety of other ways it also helps you train employees and stuff like that so i'll get right into it so the first kind of note here is the PageSpeed insights which kind of drove my learning into this area and that is that google's PageSpeed insights is a great way of course to measure your site's performance and show it off to your clients it's something where you can and i've done this literally you optimize it for them you take a picture of the before and after you also take a picture of the page speed insights of their competitors, because it's all public anyway. So of their competitors and you say, Hey, look at this. You beat your competitors by 20 points. Look at this type of thing. I've used that a few times and people have liked it. Now, the thing with page speed insights is it's not just, you know, fixing images or little, there's a lot of stuff here. There's it can actually help you detect issues with your site. Things like it'll say, Hey, this script is loading and it's really big. And you're like, Oh, I didn't even mean to load that script. Or you can, it'll say something like, Hey, this image is like 200 by 200 and it's 4k. And you're like, Oh geez, like, you know, CSS and the browser is handling the resizing here. I actually should resize the actual image asset. So it'll help you detect little issues like that and some more advanced issues as well as you kind of go along. Now, obviously there's a variety of um, issues that can plague websites performance, lowering their page speed scores in my experience, especially on the mobile side of things. So, a lot of the time, you know, assuming let's say you, you've gone through the big stuff, you've fixed, you've gotten rid of scripts that you don't need, you've gotten rid of stuff like that, and you're just like, man, like this page speed score, you know, it, it, it's improved. Maybe it's like a, a high red or like a low to mid sort of yellow or orange, but you want it to be green, right? Because 100 is green and that's perfect. You want it to be green. You want it to be up there. You might be like, man, like what is going on here? Usually from my perspective, it's due to a lack of sort of finishing polish. And, and it's usually old fonts or it's images or this and that. So the I have three things here that I just want to list out that I've used time and time again 
to really help people's uh, people's page speed scores because people will just often forget this or glaze over it. The first one is actually a CSS property. It's font display. So font display is a CSS property that controls how a font is displayed in your site. Specifically, how it specifically can help you like kind of get that blocking time of a font down. So there's several settings for font display, but the most popular one especially when trying to get your page speed in page speed insight score down is usually font display set to swap. So swap gives the shortest possible blocking time with an indefinite swap time. That means that the if the font you chose would normally take 10 seconds to load, your browser may load the page displaying a font of its choice or a fallback font or whatever, displaying a font of its choice, and then it will swap to the other font when it's done loading. So instead of the, the site just sitting there loading, loading, loading for that 10 seconds plus everything else that's loading, it doesn't let the font that's taking 10 seconds to block the rest of the site from actually going. It just says like, hey, load this thing and load this thing as you will, and you can swap the correct font in over top of the font that you that that is loaded at any time once it's done loading. Now the pro to this is that you're virtually eliminating font load times. Obviously, there's going to be some some sort of loading with either a fallback font that you've set or whether the browser just has its own or, or rather, you, rather you let the browser select its own font uh, to fall back on. So there's going to be like a tiny bit of loading there because everything loads. But at the end of the day, you're virtually eliminated that that blocking time of your font face, of your font family, whatever, and you're letting it sort of just swap in whenever. However... That last part can be a downside. So the downside is that the swap is actually usually pretty obvious to end users and can disrupt their reading experience. Letters in different font faces, different font families have different spacing. And what can end up happening is it can actually move things around a little bit add a line break if it just can't quite fit. Uh, maybe it's just a little bit janky and they'll lose their place when they're reading or it just kind of looks weird when you're reading and all of a sudden, you know, 10 seconds later, just a, a font changes. So it's one thing to certainly consider when you're when you're using font display is that like I will generally use font display swap for the Google page speed score, but check how it works with your UX and see and say, you know, I actually would prefer to have a again, it's up to your project, but it's like I'd rather have a slightly lower page speed insight score and actually have this UX be better. Like like this font face, for whatever reason, has to display in this right away for whatever reason. So if that's the case, then maybe you can't use font display swap. So just something to consider. And I'd also like one thing before I continue as well is that Google PageSpeed Insights, like you can fix some of those issues in, in that it lists. And sometimes your score won't go up at all or won't go up much. So play with the different fixes and just try to fix what you can and see what you can do because I've had places where they've had almost every optimization you could think of. And then it's just font display. And I've literally gone in and just said font display swap. And I've gotten like 15, 20 points because of just how many fonts and stuff were loading. So just something to consider. Uh, the next thing here out of my top three here is image optimizations. So images are a piece of media. That's a lot bigger than text, obviously from a file size perspective. Knowing the exact dimensions of an image you need on a site and setting that explicitly in CSS can really help you nab some additional page speed score. And it will tell you that it'll say, hey, you know, you're not using a, a specifically defined um, height and width here. So that can help you. But in addition to that, if you know that your image needs to be something like 200 by 200 pixels. You can really optimize your image, the actual asset down to that. You can compress it. You can like, you can physically take the image. If it's massive, resize it to 200 by 200, compress it as much as you can and, and play with making it look good versus how big the file size is. Get that asset down to be as small as possible so that the browser isn't loading and doing a bunch of calculations to resize it, this, that, and the other thing. And then you can then put it out there. So by you knowing exactly what you need, in this case, 200 by 200, you can use that knowledge to not only get rid of that error or that warning in Google PageSpeed Insights, but you can also use that to make that asset super small and to really speed up the site and lower the loading time. Now, image optimizations 
are actually rather difficult, not necessarily difficult like, hey, I don't understand how to do this, but more difficult to carry out because they're time consuming and you're playing with them. You might maybe it'll look good on your monitor and then you go and you pull it up on a testing iPad and the iPad looks bad. So you have to, you know, recompress it back for like take the the original copy and compress it a little bit differently or compress it less or whatever so it's just sort of difficult in in that regard so it's it it, this is often why in in my experience people kind of skip this this is especially true when the project has a very strict deadline and you're transitioning from the develop slash design phase into the production phase when this happens, people will – so when you're in rather the develop slash design phase, people will just use you know a 4K image for a 100 by 100 thing sometimes because they're just trying to make it look good and maybe it's loading locally or it's loading fast enough in their production or in their development environment that it doesn't matter. Like you're not, you're not optimizing it yet. And then when they go to production, either it just gets a really quick once over where instead of 4K, it goes down to 1080p. But again, it's like 100 by 100. It's like, why does it need to be 1080p? Um, or like it's the wrong aspect ratio even at that point and the browser is going to have to like figure that out and crop it or whatever you've set it to do. And so instead of giving it like a once over, I like to go through and actually like check, like check this image, check this image, check this image, check this image and, and do what I can. I do want to say this though as well is that sometimes you just can't for des- for the a design reason or whatever set the explicit height and the width. That's fine, but you're able to then take some if you were able to or rather you should be able to optimize that asset down as much as you can. Maybe you're auto- maybe you're automatically setting the height, but you know the width. You can go in and just generally look and say, you know the you know that the auto height is never above 300 pixels. So let me try to get my assets so that it looks good at least at 300 pixels height. And then, you know, I'm at least cutting out some of those kilobytes or those megabytes that's loading. That's what I'd recommend in terms of image optimization. And again, this is very tedious and very um, time consuming. So this is often why I find people just do a once over and don't look back. Um, Now, when images are changed dynamically, so what I mean is, is generally when they're changed through a CMS, meaning that maybe you're going to optimize and optimize and optimize and make this blog post look really nice, but then someone else is going to take that same page template. So they're going to make another blog post and their header image is not going to be as optimized as yours. This is where it can get pretty tricky because you have to set up your CMS user with the tools to upload an image, but by giving them control, you're opening them up to issues like the image is way too large. They don't maybe look good in their space. They're the wrong aspect ratio, stuff like that. Maybe it's too blurry if the image is too small uh, and it's being stretched to the limit. So this leads right into my third point, which is about images, but also other things as well. And that is why CMS training and limitations um, like hard limitations are actually is actually really crucial when it comes to site um, site performance. So when you hand over a CMS to someone who is not tech savvy, you're giving them control over assets and content that they may have no idea how to optimize or even realize that it needs to be optimized. And if a page is really bad at performing, it could adversely affect the SEO and just people going to it. If they go to it, it takes forever to load. They may be impatient and just click away. So you can and, and actually might affect your backlinks as well. If somebody was like, hey, I'm going to share this page and it takes forever to load and they click off. I mean, that's not good. So you can combat this with good CMS training. It's not perfect, but because, again, this is a CMS is sort of an open ended thing. But you can really give users like good hands on training. You can give them demos. You can give them written guides so they can refer to it later. You can do presentations with them in, say, Zoom or another vo- another uh, program, a meeting program, which, which you could share your screen and show them things. That's one good way to start. Another good way is to also sort of hint at that training that you gave them and trigger those memories with helper with helper text. So helper text, in my opinion, is very critical. And helper text is just small bits of text that generally is right below the name of the field. And it describes what the fields do or what you recommend. So for example, maybe it's a thumbnail image and you write that as the title of the field and there's a little upload button. But right below that title of thumbnail image, it'll say, hey, I recommend files less than 20 kilobytes. And that might trigger their memory. Hey, in training, I remember him saying to compress it using X software. Maybe I'll try that. It's just something to try to make them remember, hey, this needs to be, you know, 
looking nice and working nice too. And also in, in some cases, especially when the design calls for it or when you have a very explicit set dimension for the images or other things as well, even videos, stuff like that, straight up limitations are critical when handing over a site. Some users will not want training. Some will just not care and just yeah, 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 you to death. And they'll just try to upload whatever you want and what, what, what or whatever they want. And what happens is, is they'll upload a 4K image into something that's supposed to be like a like a little favicon or a little tiny icon on the site. And they'll, and then maybe it'll make the site crash or maybe it just won't upload or it'll cause an error or it just looks horrible or it, the site is getting like a two page speed insights or something. And CMS restrictions in this case is really critical. So a lot of CMSs will allow you to restrict the file size, the aspect ratio, even the dimensions. And this may still have your client calling you, but at least they're calling you because your strict limits, which you also should mention in your help with text, by the way, you should say, hey, this is restricted to two megabytes and stuff like that. But if they're trying to upload it and they're just ignoring the helper text, they're ignoring your training and they're like, man, why won't this thing upload? Instead of it messing up what they're doing, they're calling you, sure. But now you can say, hey, like I'm going to intervene here. This has to be smaller. You have to do this this way. This has to be this dimension. It has to be with this within this parameter for the for technical reasons. It's preventing them from potentially breaking or having breaking their site or having issues on on a blog post, which they may, depending on if, if it's a content site or whatever, they may have worked on that content for a very long time, only to have it be ruined by them uploading a 16K header image. So it's better to have them call and be like, hey, what's going on here? Instead of being like, hey, the site's down. I tried to upload a 16K image and now it says there's no disk space left. It's like, you know, hang on a second. You know, we have we can get a we can get a hold on this. So that's that's my thought with a CMS. And as a final note, if possible, I like to guide somebody through an experience with a CMS where they're more or less filling out a form and they can go through. And if if the if the fields are dynamic, that's that's my favorite. So I, I love to have toggle switches and drop downs in, in that allow the, the CMS user to only fill out what they need to and to clearly label things that are optional, mandatory and outright hide things that they shouldn't do. For example, if there's just one post type in, say, WordPress, which is a blog post, and you have a couple different post types in terms of content, right? So from a technical perspective, there's one post type. But in terms of content, there's there's two. There's just blog posts, which is written, but there's a video post as well. Having a little toggle switch, hide and show fields, it is the way I always prefer to do it. I haven't actually tried that in WordPress yet myself, but I have used CMSs where what ends up happening is, is I have a toggle that says, is this a video post? They select yes. It takes away all the stuff that they that would never show up in a video post. This saves me disk space. It saves them time from uploading stuff. It saves it saves them opening a ticket or questioning being like, Hey, this image won't upload when it's like, well, I mean, you're doing a video post. Why are you uploading an image? It just saves everyone a bunch of time. It saves resources. This is what I prefer to do. And you might think this is for beginners. It's really, at least in my opinion, very convenient for users as well, including myself. If I can do this for myself, I love it. I go through and it's literally like select this drop down. It's like, what, what type of post? There's five types of posts or whatever. Select this. The whole form changes, doesn't let me fill in things like I don't need to. And I literally just tab, type, tab, type, tab, type, tab, type, click upload, upload, done. It's just something for UX that really, really helps, at least in my opinion. And it helps you not only for performance, but also the UX and UI for yourself and any other CMS user. And those are the three sort of pillars that I've experienced time and time again in vanilla sites, custom sites. Even Webflow sites, time and time again, these have cost a ton of page speed insights. And these, by fixing these up and polishing these, they can really provide real results in terms of loading speed. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I think that kind of covers a lot of the client and user side of the website. Because, like, I think sometimes we forget that there's people coming in there and editing stuff, and a lot of websites demand that, right? With the CMS, so. There's another side to it a little bit where like, yes, you can train them with CMS training and all that. But have you thought of like, if the experience is really bad, even on the CMS to update content, 
then most likely that's going to lead to a bad user experience on the other end. So I think you you kind of brought that up in a really interesting way that I didn't think about before. And I definitely try to focus on that subconsciously, but I need to I need to do it more consciously as well when I design these experiences, like like you said, with the toggle switches and stuff like that, that can really benefit not only, again, the editors, but it can benefit the user, the end user, because there's going to be actually stuff being updated properly rather than just crap being put out there into production. And, and, and it honestly is is something to even consider with and just like really brief is even the budget. I mean, imagine you have a video post and the video replaces the header image. And this person who didn't listen to training always uploads a 4K image and you didn't put restrictions on there because maybe you couldn't or maybe some some of the pages need a 4K image for God knows what reason. But anyway, like, let's just say that. I mean, if they're doing 40 posts a month, right, a little over one a day, it's like, whoa, that's a lot of 4K images that they're uploading and they're not even showing up. That's a ton of disk space and that affects their budget because you're going to pass on costs to them. Of course, right? It's also affecting you because if they fill that disk space up a lot faster than you expected, you could have an outage and then you got people calling you and stuff like that. So it by really controlling the experience and making the CMS almost like guardrails and really guiding someone through an experience of editing, you're helping everyone from the most experienced, which they'll just, again, tab type, tab type, tab type, upload image, publish, good. Or the people that are really slow and they're like, what's this say here? Oh, title. Okay, let me click there. But then if they go down and they're like, video title, it's like, oh, well, I put that in as title. You see where the confusion can easily come in. So by if you can, and I've only used like one or two CMS that could do this, if you can dynamically show and hide fields, it's it's way better. It's way better, at least in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't really have too, too much to say anymore on this topic. I think we kind of nailed it across a lot of different spectrums. I think we talked about it really wide. We didn't go very deep. Uh, other than your three pillars, actually, that was really cool. Um, but I think there's a lot more to say on just speed in general. So definitely stay tuned for a future episode. Maybe we'll do a deep dive into Bun and versus Deno versus Node. Um, just because I said I'm not going to probably use it in a production environment tomorrow, uh, that doesn't mean I'm not going to play around with it because it does sound super cool. So stay tuned for that. Absolutely. Uh, and I think I think it is time to end. I'd say we covered a lot of stuff. The three pillars. We covered all the topics that Mike has gone in and we even talked about <laughs> redundancy and telecom stuff, which I didn't even think was going to come up at all. Um, so, uh, you know, thank you for thank you for listening to this point if you have. And uh, if you uh, like episodes like this, remember they were on Patreon. That's patreon.com if you want to support uh, the show at all. And uh, many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital on blueblackdigital.com, Chris from Self-Made Web Designer on selfmadewebdesigner.com, Tim from The Web Hacker on thewebhacker.com, DL Ford from dl4.io, Bib Hash Fash from Nine Block Me- Bib Hash Dash, excuse me, from Nine Block Media on nineblockmedia.com, Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com, Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca, Magnus from YesWeb via via yesweb.se, getting rusty on this, on this uh, conclusion, it's horrible. And, uh, Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeff McHale. Feel free to leave a comment or review on the platform that you are listening to this on. And this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things, signing off.